Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Thirst posting. <laughs> Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Horror Vanguard. Thank you so much for tuning in. It has been a little while. We have been dealing with uh, circumstances beyond our control, some technical gremlins here in the HV crypt, but they have been exorcised, and we are back. Uh, my name is John, otherwise known as the Lit Crit Guy, joined, as always, by my co-ghost, Ash. How are you doing? Never better. Never, never. I have, uh, I am now uh, vaccinated with the J. Jonah Jameson vaccine flavor. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Feeling, feeling really good about that. I had a terrible lunch today, but you know, I'm doing so good that my terrible lunch is completely offset. So feeling pretty fine. He's feeling good. He is desperate for pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> he is ready to make a podcast. Uh, but before we get into today's film, first, a quick word from our sponsors. This program was made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Go to patreon.com slash horrorvanguard and get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Thank you. You'll forgive me if I don't stay around to watch. I just can't cope with freaky stuff. As you have worked out from the title, we are talking about 2009's Thirst. Um, and, you know, it's been a while, you know, may, we've taken taken a kind of long week break. So maybe it's it, maybe we should just refresh our minds. And as always, Ash, would you mind just kind of very, you know, very factually just break it down. What is what is Thirst really all about? Uh, so this Pracy has a disclaimer because I don't remember writing it. The I, I had <laughs> side. That's a good sign. I know, it's always That's a good a sign. Good right? sign. Uh, I I had so the only side effects I had from the COVID vaccine were were aches, chills, and a fever uh, that started at about two in the morning uh, the day I got the vaccine and kind of rode me through most of the next day. Sometime that first night, though, I sent a couple voice notes to some friends, got very emotional, and also wrote this pricey. So I have I've kept the vast majority of it. I, I have just cleaned it up and reshaped it so it was a bit more cogent and a bit less fever dream. Um, I'm I'm kind of surprised about how on the level it was uh, when I woke up and it was just kind of there, sitting in my like pages folder. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, here is something written by a rare ash that uh, who knows will ever resurface again. <laughs> one of the central questions asked us by the exorcist is what happens when one struggles with their faith? Father Damien Karras lives in a world where God, the divine, and the devil are all objectively true. Even if they remain obscure and numinous, they are materially part of a lived and shared world. Park Chan-wook's thirst asks us a much more contemporary version of this question. What happens when one's faith struggles with them? Sang-hyun has no struggle with his faith, and our characters are likewise certain of their position relative to the divine. Tae-ju remarks, I don't have faith. I'm not going to hell. But this world lacks the certainty of Damien Karras's world. God and the devil do not make their presence so directly felt or so openly known. Sang Hyun lives in a world so much closer to ours. We bump into him every day on the train, see him in the mirror. Thirst asks us what it's like to live in a world that is defined by a crisis of faith. A world where we do not struggle with our faith, but our faith struggles with us. In homage to this film's original title, The Bat, we live in a world of echoes. Sound reverberations that leave faint afterimages of a world less solid than it would seem. A world dissolving into air. 
less solid, indeed, than we need it to be. Join us as we discuss 2009's Thirst. Ooh, what a, what a, what a great intro. What a great introduction. Thanks, thanks for um, Fever Ash. Uh, I hope I never see you again. <laughs> uh, I just want to take a minute and admire the fact that even when dealing with huge vaccine side effects, you still manage to like pull together a what I think is a genuinely quite beautiful meditation on the nature of faith in cinema. So, like, just <laughs> undying respect for, for, for you, even in a fever dream, you're still putting together top-quality film discourse. Never, never, never not be posting, I think, is the lesson here. No, oh, I, and I think, it, I, I, think it's, I think it's really interesting, right? Because, like, uh, you know, like, it's easy for me to talk about the occult, um, because that's something I can look at from a very historic perspective. And that's often how I look at it. It's much harder for me to talk about personal relationships to faith because that is like an ongoing like question that I've kind of had hanging in the back of my mind for years now. And uh, apparently, uh, you know, fever dream ash is able, is able to kind of like peer through the veil that is me and uh, mm. send really confessional voice notes <laughs> in addition to crafting this precy in the middle of the night without making the uh, the day-to-day consciousness of me aware. So uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful place we're in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, before we kind of like really get into the, 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 the discourse, are you ready to take a a a small diversion into the formalist for talking about films section <laughs> of the podcast. I love how we've settled on formalist for talking about films because there's, I don't know, we couldn't do anything better than that. Yeah, I, I mean, come on, we knew it had to be alliterative, but alliteration is hard, man. Especially with formalism and needing a word for discourse. I'm sure something's out there, but for talking works. For talking works. Um, uh, what what are your thoughts then on a kind of formalist, structuralist level about thirst? So this this is something we'll probably start talking about uh, immediately after formalism. I, I think it relates deeply to it, but um, I think the first comment I, I said to you when I got done watching this movie is that this is the the kind of meaningful error to what the Exorcist or, or a lot of what the Exorcist is trying to discuss. Mm-hmm. I, I really do think thirst. Um, is engaged with a lot of the same aesthetics and realities and questions and conversations that the exorcist was engaged in. But this is, you know, like roughly 30, 35 years later or so. And for me, this creates like a really interesting, almost like a formalist parallel to, to read the film against and, and what makes it interesting along those lines and to like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts about how this film kind of contrasts and exists in the same world as The Exorcist does? Am I like way off base with this one? No, I would. I I think it's. Uh, you described it to me as like one of the best sequels to The Exorcist, uh, which I would broadly agree with because uh, it is. It it has the same kind of attitude towards religion, in in that it doesn't. Uh, essentially disavow it as a non-question. The other point of comparison people might make with this film is uh, something like an Anne Rice movie, because we're dealing with vampires. But uh, in in Anne Rice's vampire series, uh, God is dead. You know, God is the churches are empty. There's nothing there. Um, even uh, uh, even though institutional religion is still a thing. In this, the kind of the existential and moral questions of of god and salvation and and as we'll get onto like issues of things like suicide are actually still really pressingly urgent um it is so there's a really interesting division that we can make between religion and theology right so Mm -hmm. the british the british theologian graham ward says that religion uh has its roots in the latin words to tie together uh legato to, to tie to tie a group together whereas theology is about um so it's about kind of uh, horizontal relationships, right? It's about relationships between people, whereas theology is about is theologos, which is 
the word about God. Uh, speaking of whatever God happens to be believed in is theological discourse, which is about a vertical relationship. So this is both a religious film because it's about one uh, priest, former priest's relationship to others. And it's also a theological film because it's about what is the relationship of the individual to, to whatever greater being might exist, whatever greater spiritual force might exist. So yeah, I would definitely, I think the link to the exorcist is actually really interesting. And this comes to, I, I think, more ambiguous answers than the, the first exorcist in particular. I actually really like that way of of looking at it, right? Because I think the first exorcist is really, it's a very mysterious film, but it's also not a very ambiguous one. It, it's mm-hmm. it's like it is very very direct about what it wants to talk about and this film is much more open I, and i think this is part of what makes this film feel a little bit more contemporary right because i think we exist in a lot more uncertain footing in relation to the world around us right now mm-hmm. and i think like th- that uncertainty is like part of the fabric of our lives right like we live kind of in a world that's post new atheism right like even even like contemporary pop cinema, like the, the Marvel movies have been so incredibly reluctant to acknowledge anything beyond the material. You know, like uh, all of their first Thor movies about a literal Norse god who wields magic lightning powers, they're all like, eh, it's a science guy who does space science better than you. And it's it's this harsh materiality that kind of contrasts with a world that is, I'll go for actively crumbling, that that puts us in this uncertain position and, and you really feel that in thirst yes yeah and and also just for the record it's a beautiful film oh yeah oh yeah like like i, I, I just shot composition use of color the performances i particularly like the editing because it's very good at kind of splicing in uh what seems like maybe is it maybe a dream or a vision or a or or a ghost will just kind of appear uh, in a way that doesn't break the the kind of continuity of the world that's been established. It's a, it's, it's a really, really, really good film. If you like something Mm -hmm. that is slightly slower paced. Okay. So I said this to you when watching this, that, you know, we don't draw a divide between the films that each of us like generally, but I think by now people who listen to the show know that there are certain films (laughs) which will have what we might call ash vibes some some ash energy uh they would usually be like low budget or made by working class or micro budget filmmakers you know shot on vhs you you could just you could just cut right through this and say incredibly bad horror movies uh but they're not bad they're not bad that's true that's uh lots of gooey practical effects uh lots of like rich discourse so this film uh this film has John vibes because it is about tortured religion. Uh, it is very long. It's quite slow paced. Uh, and at the end, everybody dies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. The, 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 this feels like possibly the most John movie we've covered so far. Uh, I remember when I first explained this system to you, my, my kind of taxonomy uh, to you, and you just turned around and went, oh, does this mean that you like melancholia then? And I very angrily just responded, well, of course, of course I like melancholia. <laughs> and maybe maybe melancholia would be an interesting film for us to cover one day. Um, I, I, am, I am happy though that you mentioned the length of this film and also that it's incredibly slow. I, as, as like a formalist uh, point of discussion for this movie... I didn't notice how long it was until it was over and I like looked at the time code and realized how long I had been watching this. Like yeah. it is a very slow movie that is very light on on action, but the pacing is so beautifully done that you'll never notice. Yeah, I mean a lot is done through conversation and kind of tiny moments of action. And I think like we've said before that we kind of like horror movies which are like a tight a, a tight 90 right hour and a half in out boom uh but i think that's often because longer films feel the don't don't let everything breathe and so everything has to be kept at a certain level so you just get exhausted whereas i was like you i didn't realize how long this was 
until mm-hmm. we got to the end. Oh, yeah. And if, if you're, I mean, like, as a filmmaker, right, like, if you're going to be using a lot of the audience's time, it all has to mean something, right? It all has to work and be worth it and do it. Like, a, a lot of, like, movie, movies today are so long, and I, I'm going to be quite frank about it, it all feels like bloat. Like, mm-hmm. this this yeah. all feels like some some convoluted marketing thing you know like some some studio exec realized that if a movie is x hours long it has x more revenue or something i don't know like some some horribly cursed math like that but like i didn't feel like a moment of my time was wasted in this movie Mm, yeah favorite scene um i really love the ending Ooh. i really love the ending which is most mostly (laughs) Uh, completely without dialogue. Yeah. Um, I also really love uh, the scene where they decide to have a mahjong party, and uh, and Mrs. Ra um, scratches uh, into the arm of her chair. What's what's been happening? What happened to to Kang Wu and all of the other friends? Gradually realize, and the tension just kind of ratchets up like slowly tightening piano mm-hmm. wire. Uh, how about you? Favorite scenes? Um, I think I would have to go for Give me one second. <laughs> There's like construction noises. There's going to be construction noises in the background of this episode regardless, I think. Yeah, no problem. Oh well. It's it's added uh this is this is environmental storytelling. So we we are rebuilding the HV. <laughs> yes, we we have our, we have a team of 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 zombie drones currently at work. They're unionized, by the way. <laughs> and when we say our team, it's because we're in a a uh, horizontally organized co-op. <laughs> um, yes, because we're masters of the dark and the arcane, uh, but only in a uh, completely uh, non-mastered way. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so my my favorite scene, my favorite scene in the movie, right? We've got we've got this amazing scene where uh, Te- Teju is uh, she's ran away from home, right? And she's in, in the middle of the road, right? Like like and it's cold and it's dark, and and our priest, who is a newly minted vampire, is just kind of like around the corner. Mm. Um, and this this is I do believe this is right after he's fed on blood for the first time, and and like they're. It's it's the classic vampire thing where he's too far away to really like catch up to her, um, but she turns around and starts to run away, and he's immediately behind her, and he grabs her and picks her up, and and you think for a minute that he's gonna like bite into her neck, and it's like a horror scene, but he slowly lowers her into his pair of shoes, you know, because she's yeah. barefoot and in the cold in the middle of the night, and and it's you know he's he's a priest, so he's he's caring, right? He wants things to be better than they are. Um, and I, I really, really, really like that moment because it's it's erotic, it's romantic, it's incredibly tense. It's it's a very classic bit of like vampire romance, right? Like the first the first moment where our human character is like really meaningfully overpowered by our vampire, and and the mm-hmm. the fact that it kind of culminates with something like so mundane, I think, is incredibly powerful. I I really like that scene as well. Actually, I think that's that's a really good point to maybe. I, let I mean, let's be honest. This this is a this is a very horny film. Yes, <laughs> these, yes. These are these are horny vampires, uh, mostly because our our, our priest uh, San Juan, who is uh, kind of infected with vampirism through his uh, through a blood transfusion immediately is driven by these much more carnal uh, needs, uh, meets Teju. Uh, and I think maybe we should talk about the kind of, the way that this uses eroticism and sexuality. What what did you think of that aspect of the film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I love I love that the, the subheader for this section of our notes is, quote, let's get horny, unquote. Um, <laughs> We are we are retaining our our credentials as respectable academics as best we can. <laughs> um, 
No, I, I, I think it's really interesting, right? Because I think it, it simultaneously is very clearly aware of and engaged with vampire romance fiction, right? More, more yeah. broadly, both in cinema and otherwise, right? Because the romance in this one, it, it is very reminiscent of um, like Queen of the Damned, right like it, it's got it's got that same kind of energy running through it the human vampire relationship it's very aware of of that history but at the same time it doesn't play into a lot of the same erotic tropes you know like this this movie one thing i find to be really interesting about this movie is it resists the classic vampire erotic trope of like blood drinking being synecdoche for like some kind of sex sex act like this yeah. this movie uh does vampire romance but almost does away with the sexuality of blood which i found to be really interesting what were your, uh, some of your thoughts uh yeah i actually agree with you especially the way in which what blood kind of stands in for in this film i think is really interesting and how it's connected to vampirism because the whole point is our main character didn't ask for what happened. Uh, they didn't do anything that might, you know, he, he actually says this at one point, you know, he didn't do anything. You know, this, this was just something that was done to him that he woke up one day and he had these various needs. Um, but that's the way that the blood drinking is framed. It's framed as a kind of need, but what it is a correlate to what it runs kind of like parallel alongside with is an awakening of desire. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the the relationship with uh, Teju, who is the much put upon and unhappily married and and abused wife of uh, his former childhood friend, um, is the kind of key to that because both of them recognize the desire in the other and move towards it. Um, so it it does kind of disconnect it from from blood drinking, but it intrinsically links desire with vampirism. Just not with blood, which I think is an interesting distinction. The the fact that that kind of like history is decoupled, right? Like the that still simultaneously we have our our protagonist's entrance into being a vampire, also coupled with like a lot of a lot of classic stuff, right? Like we see he has heightened senses, heightened sight, heightened smell, heightened hearing, right? And that that naturally associates itself with a certain layer of eroticism. But the fact that the blood is decoupled from it, I think it allows us to like really interrogate blood drinking for vampires. It allows us to move that into a different space instead of just kind of like weighing it down with the classic, like the, the classic discourse from Bram, Bram Stoker's Dracula, right? Where like when when Dracula uh, drinks Jonathan Harker's blood, it's it's synecdoche for like homoeroticism and like you know, all the same discourses of like virginity and blood purity, uh, like the classics of vampire blood drinking. I think this movie very cleverly forces us into new and challenging conversations. Yeah, because it goes actually, you know, with with our with our main character who, who steal mostly steals blood from the hospital. Uh, it that isn't that is not necessarily erotic. The erotic is everything that comes alongside being a vampire. So the, all of that comes along with it, but it isn't necessarily tied up with the need. So need and desire are not correlated. They're not the same thing. It's actually like becoming a vampire actually kind of unlocks desire. It, it, it sort of releases it, but it doesn't, it isn't intrinsically bound up with being a vampire. And I think this brings us on to um, the kind of ethics of, of vampire transformation in this film. Mm-hmm. Because... What do you think about I think it's really interesting because this basically happens as a as a kind of awful accident. I mean again appropriately enough to the year we live in uh our our protagonist uh lives in a world where there is a incredibly deadly new viral strain uh that research is currently trying to stop. Um mm-hmm. he goes in and volunteers himself for uh, part of the test group for a vaccine for this thing. It doesn't go too well. <laughs> he dies. <laughs> um, but he's he's transfused with with some fresh blood at the last minute. 
and it reawakens him. It, he he gets vampire blood somehow, some way, by accident. He he gets a tainted batch of blood transfusion, and I think that that opens up a new conversation for us, right? Because there's a lot in kind of like vampire fiction about like the, these kind of like AIDS epidemic fears, you know, from like the height of the AIDS epidemic and later about like you know the risks of blood transfusion and like. still to this day like if you're if you're a gay man in a lot of places in the world you just straight up can't give blood you know like like your blood is considered inherently dangerous inherently poisonous right and like this movie is you know maybe perhaps unintentionally sure invoking those fears and those conversations right because like as i as i you know reminisced on moments ago you know dracula is rife with this kind of like homoerotic subtext and and that like you know Anne Rice's vampires are just like very I mean it's not subtext for Anne Rice's vampires no no not not it is it is text text you know and like it is it is very uh open and much later vampire texts right and like I I think that that's a question that kind of lingers in in the background of this movie I what I think is really interesting is the way the um there it's a very it's a very complicated moment because our main character is a priest who's working in a hospital. He seems to be very conscientious, um, but it's quite obvious at the opening of the film that he's quite profoundly depressed. Um, you know, he doesn't see that his work is actually helping people, which is why he volunteers for this like I- incredibly dangerous. <laughs> Uh, clinical trial experimentation because he wants to to kind of do something positive and there is there's a degree to which like often transformation is is kind of framed as either being something that's like intrinsically positive you know because you become Mm -hmm. something better something other um or it's something that's like forced upon you and it's become and it makes you into something kind of monstrous um I think that the, the transformation here is kind of analogous and comparable to Interview with a Vampire. Um, and in a way, it sort of reminds me of The Fly. There's a line in The Fly where Seth Brundle says, you know, he wants to change me into something else. That's not so bad, is it? Most people would give anything to be something else. Um, even though it's a kind of very physically debilitating thing that's happening to him, there's something kind of noble about it. And it's, there's something analogous to it here, right? It's it's there's a there's there's something tragic about it, but it's also something it's tragic precisely because he chooses to put himself in this position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think like in this. So let's. How do you feel about getting on into like a a big and very difficult conversation called vampire ethics? <laughs> yes, yes. Let's do that. We we are uh, uh, t- turning around to face Mark Fisher and walking backwards into the vampire castle. <laughs> <laughs> So th- this movie, I think, maybe better than a lot of other vampire texts, brings up a lot of like really compelling issues about the ethics of vamp- vampirism, like literally fictive vampires and how they exist in the world, right? <clears throat> you know, like we have we we have the the inciting incident is, is is really interesting, right? Because somehow vampire blood makes it into like this clinical trial supply of of you know like blood transfusion blood, mm. and I think that like like wondering pondering how that got there like kind of like leads me into a lot of like interesting kind of like discursive spaces, right? Because like the the transformation into being a vampire has kind of like several different ethical problems that come with it right like and i don't think they're ever very satisfactorily dealt with you know Mm -hmm. like the the core problem that we're dealing with here is like you got to kill people to eat people and you used to be a people you know so so it's this ethical problem that comes with the fact that vampires are simultaneously human and non-human but I think the uh, not quite human and formerly human are should be should be very startling categories out there. You know, like if if any part of your person overlaps with any group that is othered by society writ large, mm. you know, like the the condition of a vampire is one who is either born or forced to become something that can't quite ever be human again. 
you know, like they're mm-hmm. like all monsters. They're they're in conversation with the, the capital O other with the exterior, and they're also forced to die. You know, like they're not worthy of life. The thing that they need, which I mean, like I think tr- weirdly enough, True Blood might off the top of my head, True Blood is like one of the best conversations on this. Like, but it, it in the world we live in today, like it is entirely possible for like an artificial non-lethal supply of blood to be provided you know like our our protagonists need not die in order to continue living the life that they've been kind of brought or forced into well this is this is the thing right this is the the kind of tension that develops uh between uh san juan and teju right this because his his argument is that the feeding on blood is a need, something that you have to do. So you have a responsibility to do it in a way that is, you know, quote unquote, most ethical. And that means kind of stealing it from the hospital or from people in comas, whatever. But, uh, you know, as when Teju is turned into a vampire, her point is like, well, what if you want to kill somebody? What if you, what if you want to just bring somebody home and tear their throat open? Uh, what what is going to stop you if you're if you are made to be something other what what why do you think you have to be constrained by the same kind of normative ethical or moral codes and that that forms their kind of mm-hmm. central tension that dr- goes all the way through the second half of the film and the film doesn't provide a kind of easy or simplistic answer to this either I and that's one of my favorite parts about this movie because that I think is a question that you can't just freely answer Right. Like that's that's an incredibly difficult question. Right. And like. If, if, we, if we are to take the condition of the vampire as something serious, right, like this is this is a sentient being often formerly completely human or still completely human, depending on how you want to argue that particular line, like they're, they're the condition of vampirism then in and of itself isn't something monstrous. It's just something other. And we have now an incredibly difficult conversation to have. And I think it's a conversation that we don't really have ready framework for, you know, like early, early humans killed off the other like hominid primates, you know, we're, we're a little bit alone on this rock Mm. and like we, we don't have the analogous comparison. And I think that is incredibly difficult if we're to take this like on a flat ethical plane. Yeah. You know, like uh, so much of human life is predicated upon violence towards, towards others, towards, uh, towards non-human others. And it, you know, those which don't fit or are not seen or perceived as fitting within a kind of constructed category of what human might mean. Like we don't really have a leg to stand on when it comes to critiquing vampires for being violent and hunters and and uh, uh, hurting and and murdering other sentient creatures. Exactly, and like we have, I mean, like the ready comparisons are intra to our own species, mm-hmm. right? We have, we have classism, racism, ableism, eugenics, homophobia. We have the works. You know, we, in a lot of respects, like we don't need to look outside to find those kind of like metaphorical comparisons for like vampire ethics because we do it to ourselves. Which is precisely, I think, what makes the vampire so useful, right? It's a monster that's always stuck around precisely Mm -hmm. because it exists at at the interstices of these various ethical problems. So I don't think it's possible to have a clean resolution on like vampire ethics right like like the drinking of blood because i think this ley line we can draw so many ready comparisons to our lived condition right Mm -hmm. like in one hand we have like an obvious an obvious comparison to ableism right like these people have been infected with some kind of condition right and now they need an additional supply of blood to live you know like a lot of people live like that mm. a lot of people already have that as part of their lives oh yeah, yeah. right that doesn't make you monstrous you know but in in a completely other hand right like there are 
ready and very important analogies to be made between vampires and kind of people who are dominant in the social hierarchy, right? Like, you know, patriarchs, white supremacists, you know, like people of the upper class, right? Like people who who are structured in society in such a way where they necessarily, to maintain their position, must feed off of the people that are structured below them. And that is very bad. It needs to be very stopped. <laughs> yeah, it's like the question comes down to, again, this question of need versus desire. You know, do you, is it, is it, this kind of is this kind of uh this kind of violence that they inflict upon others is that is that something that needs to happen or is that something that there is a desire to inflict and the the probably super uncomfortable answer is a mixture of the two yes uh because that's always the way that kind of this sort of thing tends to work which as you say, doesn't allow us to make any kind of easy moral choices or any easy moral decision about about vampires, especially uh, vampires which are, in this film, obviously so tortured by the moral question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like we, we see the split between our two vampires yeah, right yeah. by the end of the movie. One, one is very cool with what they've become and the need to hunt and and go after living supplies of blood and our priest is incredibly reluctant uh, and and sees themselves and sees their own needs as something kind of like horrifying uh so it's sort of like self abnegation leading into sort of self destruction Mm, mm, that's interesting. So let's tie this back to the religious angle, you know, like let, let, let's tie this back to the, cause I mean like our, our protagonist is, is literally a priest, you know, like, like this, this film wants this discourse. So let's go there. Like we, we have, we have one vampire who claims to have no religion yet definitely be not going to hell. And then we have another another man who is just very clearly tormented by by the end of this movie with his position in his faith. Right? We get, we get that scene where he first joins up with the medical experiment, where he says he says something like uh, the the doctor that's interviewing. Do do, if you, do you remember the line exactly? Because the doctor that's interviewing him uh, uh, says something like, you know, we have a lot of people who sign up for this experiment who just want to die. And mm-hmm. if that's your case, we don't want to take you uh, because we're not here for that. We're here for research. And then, and then he says something like, yeah, the doctor asks him about his faith and if he's lost it because he's a priest. And, and he says something like, there's nothing wrong with my prayers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember the exact line, but I know exactly the bit that you're talking about. So how do we then read religion into where our two vampires wind up at the end? Because... Despite the fact that they've got these converging beliefs, they wind up at the exact same spot. Yeah, I mean, what's worse, right? What's worse? Believing believing that what happens to you is uh, completely without meaning and that there there is no kind of greater purpose or believing that there might be, that there is some, some sort of meaning behind it all. You know, what, what does it mean to... There's a, there's a kind of uh, almost irreconcilable tension between uh believing in an omnipotent and benevolent god and going well uh i now need to inflict violence upon others in order to maintain my own existence you know that's that no no wonder he kind of like uh, his he he renounces his faith at one point he says i'm no longer i'm no mm-hmm. longer a, yep. i'm no longer a father you shouldn't call me that um so there's there's this kind of ex he has a kind of existential crisis right a, a, and, a, and a crisis of, of faith in a way that's really profound um because it raises like very immediate questions about well what does it mean to exist and again all of that kind of leads up to the ending what do you think and i think that 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 is i think the really profound question that's being asked here right because we we have this weird balance that's that's being done towards the end of this film where in one hand we've got the kind of like standard and like packaged 
uh, you know, like Christian imperative to, to do good, even if it makes you suffer, right? Yeah. Like while, while our priest is uh, going through this horrifying medical experiment, he's, sa- he's saying a prayer that basically sums up to uh, wanting his entire body to wither away and die uh, so, so that like there can be nothing left for him, but like God's salvation. Mm-hmm. And like, he gets that. You know, and I think the way in which that comes about simultaneously reifies what he was asking for, right? Like this penultimate degradation and and nothing left, but like, you know, like like vampires very classically are killed by sunlight. They're very clearly killed by like God's light and warmth. Like that is the thing that burns away their very essence. And like at the end of the movie, it's literally the warmth and salvation of God rotting away his very life. Mm-hmm. And that there's this weird balance between that and kind of like the imperative that sends him to the experiment in the first place, right? Like this imperative to like somehow better the world. Yes. This, this tension between trying to live and at the same time being called to die. Right, that's 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 the tension at the heart of any kind of like, uh, it, it's at the heart of much of the New Testament, which is this idea of if you if you identify as Christian, then you have a kind of duty to do various things in the world, but also you yourself will kind of become less, and it, all that will remain will be God. So it's this idea of. Um, uh what is it Her, uh, the great the great uh socialist catholic herbert mccabe says that um if you if you do not love you will not really live but if you love they'll kill you for it um which is which is a great it's a great it's a great kind of way of putting it uh and that's precisely the point right he says he's going to go and do this because he wants to make a difference because he wants to serve his 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 fellow man but at the same time he's also caught in this idea of like how do you make the self retreat uh and you end up he ends up literally and kind of religiously trapped Mm, yeah that that being religiously trapped i think is really interesting here um and i'm sorry that like most of this episode is kind of like me interviewing you but i also feel that's like the most appropriate way to go about this episode Mm. (laughs) um So as far as like being religiously trapped in a horror context goes, why or hmm, do I want to word this? So his his condition is both like li- literally alien, right? Like like is to the best of my knowledge, no one has actually actually become a vampire in in the movie sense of the term. Um, but his condition is incredibly common. You know, being being trapped in a veritable double bind by your religion—that's not—that's not some like cheap new atheist, like discursive headlock that is nothing more than a child's annoyance. Mm. You know, he, he is caught in something true and deep and meaningful and painful. You know, like how how then do you do you connect this as like a horror text in with much more direct lived experience? Well, I think the the kind of horror is 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 predicated on coming to terms with a new condition, uh, a new state of being, and making choices based on that, which maybe in his case, which violate a kind of previous ethical code. Uh, firstly, he he has an affair with someone who's married. Uh, he then uh, kills her husband. Uh, um, What's his name? Uh, Kang Wu uh, is Teju's husband, uh, and he ki- mm-hmm. he kills her her husband because he believes that the husband is 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 physically abusive, and he ends up drowning him. So uh, yeah. so we have two two kind of major uh, choices here. So the horror is realizing that your choices have placed you in a kind of particular situation, right? the way that you have been forced or chosen to live again, that tension between need and desire have led you to a certain point. And like the, the, the high point of the horror is like those amazing scenes where Kang Wu starts appearing in bed with them, which is like, Oh, mm-hmm. which is just kind of skin crawling. Right. I, it's so, so creepy. 
What do you what do you think? What's your what's your take? Uh, so, I, I think like the thing that's most interesting for me about this film, and one of the things that's just like so incredibly compelling, is how kind of like I, I think this ties into how slow the movie was and how it lacks any like grotesque overabundance. You know, it's a very grounded film. It's a film that is very lived and very real. You know, like nothing in this movie feels too incredibly over the top or too wild, you know? Like even even when our priest starts developing some pretty serious vampire superpowers, it's not it's not Twilight. He's not punching trees in half and outracing werewolves in the street and like whatever. Like it's it's much more grounded. And I think that his crisis of faith, her absence of faith, the the fact that she has has like he he has led a life that has kind of conditioned him to embrace suffering as perhaps a a test of his faith, right? Uh, the woman he winds up in a relationship with has led a life where suffering has just been forced on her at every possible turn and the most unimaginable and horrific suffering. Yeah. So when she finally gets power, she she enacts revenge, right? Like, it, it, very much like her character arc is just, I spit on your grave, except she becomes a vampire. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly, you know, common story arc, and I, I, I'm hard-pressed to fault her too bad for what she does, you know? Yeah. Especially as a character, especially in a world where there is, like, there's no alternative mechanism you know, even as a vampire, she can't get meaningful restorative justice for what she's faced. Like, there's no there's no mechanism for it. All she has is either forgiveness or revenge, and it's kind of a coin toss. And for our priest, like, the, the way his, the, the, his faith just melts off the bone, you know, like, the, the, way, the way he goes from ready to make this ultimate sacrifice to forcing himself to make it i i think is like an incredibly painful journey right because like he's he's having something stripped away from him that is at the core of his being and like by and by we all go there and that i I think for me is like the most compelling stuff i i really like that reading and i think that that distinction between various kinds of suffering is really key um because yeah, you're right. Like, in in a kind of religious idea, suffering is is it can be it can even be good. It can because it's a chance for for you know there to be kind of the miraculous work happening. But uh, Teju's experiences underscores that suffering is meaningless, and if suffering can end and you can get revenge, who wouldn't take it? You know, it's next to impossible to really sort of. Um, to fault her for what she chooses to do. Oh, although, although very quickly, we should talk about what she chooses to do with Kangwoo. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what, what is, what is your kind of line on that? Well, I think it's super interesting. This, this notion that she's clearly incredibly unhappily married, uh, like as is puts up with the most kind of horrendous abuses, but she and she wants her her husband gone. Um, but the thing that kind of really upsets uh, um, San Juan is that, like, she lies to him about it. He he drowns her husband in the lake in the in the reservoir when they go fishing. Uh, but later, he finds out that she she lied about the physical abuses that she was suffering. So he he gets instrumentalized so that she can get what she wants, mm-hmm. and it's like, I I was just thinking, if she'd been honest and just said, I think we should kill him, do you think they still would have gone through with it? I mean, honestly, probably. <laughs> part part of part of our priest becoming weaponized. Right. It exists in a little bit of this uncertain space, you know, because like, I think it's almost coarse 
Because mm. at, at, at some point, this has to come to a head because they're entering into an affair, right? Like they're entering into some kind of relationship and it's, it's growing, it's growing to be more than just a fling through the course of the movie. Right. Like that conflict has to come to a head somewhere. Mm. And I, I think part of his character arc is entering into a space where he becomes ready to be instrumentalized for that kind of violence. That's a really good take, and it totally fits with the kind of reviews that I've seen of this film, which describe it as a vampire movie crossed with a film noir. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, totally. As we as we wrap up, then, do you want to do you want to uh, talk about the end very quickly? Yeah, yeah, let's let's do it. So, so set 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 the scene the scene for us for this very a very a very John movie ending. Uh, <laughs> uh, yep. So there is a uh, there's a fight uh, at the house after Mrs. Ra uh, communicates by scratching it into the arms of a chair that Kangwu was murdered. Uh, Teju very quickly kills two of the friends. Uh, San Juan puts Mrs. Ra in the car and along with Teju drives into the night and to this desolate field in which there's no cover. Uh, and she tries to hide, uh, tries to hide in the boots, tries to like get back in the car, but um, he blocks her at every turn and the two of them sit uh, on the hood of the car as the sun rises uh, and they both burn into ash whilst Mrs. Ra watches from the back seat. Yay! <laughs> it's <laughs> it, it's a happy so a happy ending. <laughs> so upbeat. This this is this is this is a loving, caring, happy way to end a movie. It's like a it's like a warm hug. <laughs> this is like a James Gunn film. It's fun, it's lighthearted, it's kind of gross. Uh, what did you think about the ending? I, I think there's, there's so much we can say about the ending of this film. Um, one of the things that's interesting for me is that it can be read as like an ending of a cycle of violence, sort of. You know, we, we have we have the, the two perpetrators of all these murders, right? Like we have the people who kind of entered this violent spiral that necessitates more viral violence to keep itself contained. Mm -hmm. You know, like the the more they kill, the more people become aware of their killing, the more people they need to kill to keep their killing secret. Mm -hmm. You know, um, they've entered into a loop that can only end so many ways. Yeah. Um, however, they kind of drag somebody else along for the ride. Then again, somebody who's not very innocent to begin with. Yeah. So that really complicates things, right? Like as much as this is a world without faith, this is also kind of a world without meaningful justice. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a very bleak ending. It's a very bleak ending because is there um is there a chance that like there is a possibility that really their death is a kind of transcendence, you know? Eh, maybe, but that that seems to be reaching a little bit. Um, but it is very bleak, and it's a kind of like the the only salvation, if you want to frame it in religious terms, is through utter self destruction, which is which is mm. which is super bleak. Oh yeah, incredibly incredibly bleak is definitely appropriate for this ending. I don't think there's much in the way of like a happy way to dig this one out. <laughs> even even though I, I would love to like summon a ninth dimensional posi core ending for, <laughs> for this movie, I don't think anyone gets out happy uh, in thirst. How how does how does this work religiously for you? This ending, you know, like like we. We we have characters at two opposite spectrums of, of kind of a, a religious way of being. Um, I mean, like both both still deeply defined and in conversation with religion. However, at the opposite ends of discourse, uh, 
and here they are at the end of the movie kind of like roasting alive on the hood of a car well it's uh what's interesting is that she uh teji recognizes the like that he's not gonna let her escape and uh uh kind of willingly just sits down next to him um I mean, you could talk about it in terms of like martyrdom because martyrdom is this kind of religiously inflected idea of willingly giving away one's life. Um, this is why, and it, and martyrdom in, in religious circles have very, has a very specific understanding of it. You know, it isn't just being, um, it isn't just being killed for one's beliefs, but willingly sort of giving up life for, for one's beliefs. And it's a very kind of narrow uh, term. So, uh, you could, if you really wanted to think about it, you could think about it in terms of like, you know, is it, is it, are they vampiric martyrs? Have they given up their lives mostly because mm. they couldn't stand to continue living? But to me, it's not really a religious question, right? It's, um, it's a philosophical question and it's a question that comes from the myth of Sisyphus. Um, this is what Albert Camus says, which is that the only serious philosophical question is that of suicide. Why would one continue to why 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 would one continue to choose living, um, given the absurdities of existence? And I think in that way, it's a very existential ending. I I am so happy you pushed the myth of Sisyphus button. <laughs> <laughs> but because because okay, like fuck, I said I wasn't going to do this. Um. <laughs> do it, do it. So part part of that is we we must you know imagine Sisyphus is happy. You know, we 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 have to like negotiate our way through what Sisyphus experiences because it is our lives and it is our lives on a fundamental level. You know, like especially under capitalism. Under capitalism rolling a boulder up and down a hill all day feels like a really bougie workout plan yeah right like to the life of sisyphus is a life of bourgeois excess compared to what we have right now mm -hmm. like the gods couldn't have imagined the kind of condemnation that would be like being a cashier at a tesco yeah right like it, that in and of itself is its own deepest layer of absurdity but what what then do we do right like there there has to be a peace in struggle right there has to be a peace in forward momentum out you know like the torment either prevails or it doesn't and if it doesn't that means there's something else under the surface there and i think for me this ties back to that bag of blood at the onset of the film right uh, taiju and our priest aren't the only vampires in this world mm. There's at least, at minimum, an other vampire. Likely more. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? And that, for me, begs a question of... There are people who have successfully answered this question before. There there are, are vampires who have made peace. And the fact that one is has, has a blood bag of their own blood, mm. who knows how that happened? Yes. Right. Maybe they got hit by hit by a car, and like they they took some blood, or like who? There's a thousand ways that that could have came about. Yeah. You know, it, it could it could be like a a a you know like rogue vampire terrorist going around like seeding blood bags full of vampire blood everywhere. Who knows? You know, like that in and of itself opens up a whole world of discourse, a whole world of possibilities that's just outside the frame, mm. and that's part of what makes this movie so really 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 nearly perfect for me is it it's not it's not doing the thing that twilight wants to do where it denies the existence of a greater world and even Anne rice's vampires are guilty of this right the sum total of vampire society is subsumed within these eurocentric vampires yeah. You know, and, and then there's like, you know, like in, in Twilight's just fucking colonial nightmare land. It's got like, oh, there's some tribe vampires elsewhere, but they're not really important until we need them to fight and die for us. Yeah. Like uh, chillingly familiar. Um, but in this world, like we have the barest hint of the greater landscape of culture and society around us. And I think that that's just phenomenal. 
what a what a great way of putting it. What a great way of putting it. And I can't, I can't, I genuinely can't think of a better way to end. Sweet episode over. <laughs> you just, you just got on a. Is there anything? You just got on a roll there, and I was just like, "Yep, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah." Let's go, go out on a bang. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>